You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. You bow with me together as we pray. Father, what can we ask but that you would give us a glimpse of Christ and His glory and that we would be transfixed and transformed by seeing Him in the pages of Scripture. We ask you to grant us understanding in your word. Help us to appreciate all that is said of our great Savior and our great God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for such a great salvation and a great interceder. And we pray that you would open our eyes and hearts to your word this morning, that you would be glorified through the obedience that your people offer to you for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, having given several weeks to considering the glory of the deity of Jesus Christ, his complete equality with the Father in John 8, we've now, in beginning last week, switched our attention over to considering the other side of the person of Christ, and that is his humanity, that this one who was born was born God, but we need not, we should not forget that he was also born fully man, 100% humanity, 100% deity in the person of Christ. Now, that is admittedly a very hard thing to, for us to get our heads around, right? At last week, having looked at the humanity of Christ and tried to, to describe how the humanity and the deity can exist, two natures in the one person, you may have thought to yourself, that is, that's hard to understand. Now, if you think it's hard to understand, you ought to try explaining something that can't be understood. That's even harder. And uh, explaining it when you don't, you, you know that you can't quite grasp or wrap your mind around it is very difficult because nobody on this side of eternity can really fully comprehend how it's possible that that one person can be both God and man. And yet we accept that and embrace that on the testimony of Scripture because that is what Scripture teaches. John Owen, in his book on the glory of Christ, it has a, a section in there on the Word made flesh, the condescension of, the, of Christ from being God to becoming man that condescension, he explains that sort of that mystery of the humanity and the deity, and he concludes that section on the glory of Christ with this, and this is what I think we have to rest in. John Owen writes, We speak of these things in a poor, low, broken manner. We teach them as they are revealed in Scripture. We labor by faith to adhere unto them as revealed. But when we come into a steady, direct view and consideration of the thing itself, our minds fail, our hearts tremble, and we can find no rest but in a holy admiration of what we cannot comprehend. We are at a loss, and we know that we shall be so while we are in this world. End quote. That's it. You can try and describe the humanity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, uh, two natures, one person, but ultimately our minds fail us and our hearts tremble, and we just simply have to rest in what is revealed in Scripture even though our minds cannot fully comprehend it. So last week we looked at, unto us is born a son, familiar passage, Isaiah 7:14, the prophecy given to, uh, given in Isaiah of that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, a child, and we kind of talked about the humanity a little bit. Today we're going to look at another element of the humanity of Jesus, and that is Jesus being born a sovereign or a king. So turn to another familiar passage of scripture, Isaiah chapter 9 this time, Isaiah 9, and we just read this, and I briefly commented on it last week. Because Isaiah begins by again describing this, the humanity of this one who was born king. Isaiah 9, and we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. 
that the Messiah would be born a king as a ruler, a sovereign, a potentate, was so was repeated so much in the Old Testament that the Jews expected that he would be born as a king would be born. They expected when the Messiah came that he would have a royal birth, a royal welcome, welcoming, that he would come from a royal line, which our Messiah did, Jesus did, but he didn't have quite the royal birth that everybody expected. Everything in the Old Testament pointed forward to the coming of a king, somebody who would rule, somebody who would reign. That's what they were expecting. All of the theocracy of the Old Testament, the kingdom of David and David's lineage, all of that was intended to sort of portray what would happen through this Messiah, that there would be a physical government, a literal government, a rule and a reign on earth, on David's throne. In the, in the prophets, or the, sorry, in the Psalms, we have uh, messianic Psalms that deal with the reign and the rule of this Messiah. The prophets then, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all the prophets describe that kingdom. They describe the world during that kingdom. They describe the nature and the character of that king and where he would rule and what he would rule over. The prophets give tremendous real estate to describing what this kingdom is going to look like when it finally arrives. And so Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 is in the context of describing this king and this kingdom. And I want to read to you some other passages of Scripture that describe the king and the kingdom. And this, I could go more, far more than what I'm going to read to you, but I just want to give you a flavor for how the Psalms describe this and what the Jews were, were looking forward to, what they were expecting. So as I'm reading this, I just want you to be thinking about what you are hearing. In Genesis 49, it goes all the way back, the first, really the first mention of this in the clearest terms in Genesis 49, verse 10, when Isaac is blessing his 12 sons, and to Judah he says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, that's the scepter or the ruler's staff, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh, that means the peaceful one, or peace comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Psalm 2, verse 6, which is a messianic psalm, God says, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And in that messianic psalm, you remember that one begins with, with David saying, uh, why do the nations rage and plot a vain thing against God? They, 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 they war up against the Lord and against His anointed, but God laughs at them and He scoffs to the nations. God says, I'm going to install my king upon Zion, and I am going to give to that son the nations as an inheritance, and he will crush them with a rod of iron, he will shatter them like earthenware vessels, he will destroy all opposition, and he will rule and he will reign. That's the promise of Psalm 2. David wrote that, looking forward in time to David's greater son, who would reign on his throne. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Does that sound familiar? That's from Hebrews chapter 1, where the Father says to the Son, where the Father calls the Son God and says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Psalm 110, another messianic psalm. Verses 1-4, through four, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will voluntarily volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Isaiah 32, verses 1 and 2, behold, a king will reign righteously. And princes will rule justly. Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. Jeremiah 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, 
And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah 30 verse 9, But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. That was not speaking of David literally, but David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Zechariah chapter 6 verse 12, they said to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices, between priest and king. See, the prophets predicted a time when one person would rule, and he would forever do away with a priesthood. So you wouldn't have in the land of Israel any longer a priesthood and a kingship. You would have one ruling who was both priest and king. One who fulfilled both of those offices, ruling as king and interceding as priest. Zechariah 9. This will sound familiar. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Daniel 7 describes God the Father giving that kingdom to his son. Verse 13, I kept looking at the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like the Son of Man coming and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. I could go on reading and reading and reading and reading from the Old Testament about the expectation of a king. Not just because there is so much, but listen, because there is something in me that just loves to meditate on the idea that Jesus Christ will one day rule and reign in a perfectly righteous kingdom on this earth. Just last Sunday, we went to the the performance of Handel's Messiah that was done here in town. Uh, Jenny and my wife sing in that, uh, it's called a choir, chorale, choir. I don't know my terms very well. It's going to become obvious to you just how ignorant I am. I thought Handel's Messiah was a hallelujah chorus, so I thought I had heard Handel's Messiah. turns out I hadn't heard Handel's Messiah. The chorus is just a small part of that. Did you know that? I, I didn't know that. You say, Jim, you're ignorant. Surprise, surprise. I know. Uh, the thing goes on for days, actually, because the, what they presented was not even the full concert. It was just two hours of the concert. And man, it was so well done. And there's this point in the, in the choir, in the performance where the, when the Hallelujah Chorus is sung, it's tradition that you stand up for that. So I stood up and everybody else in the auditorium stood up to, for handle, for the, not Handel's Messiah. See, I gotta get that right in my head. That for the Hallelujah Chorus. And I stood there just with my eyes closed and listened to them sing, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And the kingdom of this earth has become the kingdom of our God or of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings, Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And somebody behind me was peeling onions because my eyes were watering like that. And I thought, really? Peeling onions at a place and time like this is totally inappropriate. And I wiped away the tears and I sat there and just meditated upon that and just brought joy to my heart, the thought that our God, our King, He reigns in heaven now. There's a spiritual rule in heaven. He is sovereign over all of that, yes. But there is going to come a point where in the prophecy and the plan of God and the expectation of God, what He, what His rule in heaven is not all that is to be had here on earth. There is going to be a rule of that Son of David, that King, here on earth. 
And God will give to him the nations as his inheritance, and he will rule and he will reign forever and ever. And that will begin on this earth. It will have a 1,000-year expression and manifestation on this earth during the millennium. At the end of that, when God dissolves this earth and recreates a new heavens and a new earth, that reign will continue over the kingdom of David and on the throne of David forever and ever, and it will have no end. Doesn't that thrill your heart? Man, that thrills my heart. Born unto us is this son who is also a sovereign. He is a king. And his humanity or his kingship or his sovereignty is an expression of his humanity. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Let's look at it. We'll read verses 6 and 7 together. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, unlike Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the prophecy about a virgin conceiving and bearing a son, these verses are in a a decidedly messianic context. Isaiah chapter 7, the context was not so much messianic. It was really just a, a prophecy dealing with a historical situation in which God inserted this, this uh, prophecy which would be fulfilled in Isaiah's day but have a greater fulfillment in the person of Christ. But in Isaiah 9, the context is decidedly messianic. It is an, an, the, chapter 9 actually describes this kingdom and some of the things that will happen when this king takes his throne. I want you to look up at verse 1, and I'm just going to ask you to skim over some things. We're not going to deal with the whole context like we did last week. In verse 1, there is the promise that God, having treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, and He judged them that it was part of the northern kingdom, that later on God shall make them glorious by way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So God was going to lift His curse and judgment from the northern kingdom, and there was going to come a point where the northern kingdom as well as the southern kingdom would be made glorious. And this is what the Lord Jesus is going to do. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Matthew quotes verse 2 of Isaiah 9, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. That was a promise and a prediction that this is what the Messiah will do. He will, he will arrive, He will be the light of the world, He will be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nation of Israel. This is one of the roles of the king. In verse 5, or verse 4, there is the promise that God through this king would break the yoke or break the burden and oppression of foreign nations. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, as at the battle of Midian. Do you remember when Gideon defeated the Midianites? And there was that complete destruction? And God delivered His people? Isaiah likens the deliverance of the Messiah to that. Like when God delivered His people under Gideon from the Midianites, so God is going to break the oppression of of foreign nations against His people, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And when this Messiah came to reign and to rule, There would be a time when there would be no war. It would be a time of peace because all of the implements of war and the weapons of war would be done away with, put aside. It would be changed from spears and swords into plowshares and and implements for farming. Look at verse 6 or verse 5. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. All those implements of warfare will perish. They They will be gone when the Prince of Peace rules. There will be no uprisings. There will be no attempts to overthrow his reign. Nation will not rise against nation, people against people. There will be no bloodshed. There will be no international quarrels. There will be no Middle East conflict. Would that be a nice day when the king of peace rules in the Middle East? There will be no Middle East conflict because he will rule the the nations with a rod of iron and he will make sure that his will is done and he enforces his will. Justice will be done. 
Righteousness will be done. That's the promise. Now verse 6. How is this going to happen? How is Zebulun and Nephtali and the northern kingdom, how are they going to be made glorious? How, when is this light to the Gentiles going to come? How is it going to be that he will break the oppression of the nations which were surrounding Israel and threatening their peace? How will he break that? How will he do away with all the weapons of warfare? What is this going to look like? This is where verse 6 and verse 7 come in. There is going to be unto, born unto us a son. A child is going to be given to us. And that's the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have in verses 6 and 7 a description of the king and a description of his kingdom. The king and his kingdom. The kingdom is a reflection of the nature of the king. So however, whatever the nature of the king is, that is what is going to be sort of meted out and reflected by the kingdom itself. He is going to rule in a certain way, so those things which characterize the king will characterize the kingdom over which he rules. So we're going to take a look at two things, the king and then his kingdom in verses 6 and 7. Let's take a look at the king first. Verse 6, For the child will be born to us, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That is a description of the king. I want you to notice the first thing. First of all, his coming. He is going to be born unto us a son, a child. Now this is an expression, or this is a way of expressing the humanity of this one who would be born as king of the Jews. He's going to be born. He said, that's obvious. Why would you state something so obvious? Well, look, with, in all the ways, with considering all the ways in which the Old Testament prophets described this king, that he would be glorious, that he would be a light, that he would be God, that he would be David's greater son, that he would rule the nations, that he would be righteous, that he would be just, that he would be perfect, that he would be powerful. One might have expected that such a king, would he, when he came, he would come with lots of fanfare. Maybe a trumpet from heaven, uh, riding out of heaven on a, on a blazing steed, or being pulled in a heavenly chariot by, by horses, or something magnificent. But is that how the Lord came? No. In the most humble of ways, to the most nondescript of parents, in the most humble of means, and to the most humble of places, Bethlehem of all places, not Jerusalem where you might expect a king to be born, and to reign, and to rule, and to and to enter into this world, not directly out of heaven, but just through normal childbirth, normal birthing process, Jewish mom, Jewish dad, later on Jewish siblings, in a Jewish home in the land of Israel. The most humble and nondescript environment you can possibly imagine. He's going to be born unto us a son. So this one, who is later described as the eternal God or the mighty God and the Father of eternity, this one who was born is going to be born just as a son. This is the humanity of the Lord Jesus and his humble upbringing, his humble circumstances. Luke says in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that he continued to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. In his humanity, he grew in understanding, he grew in knowledge, he grew in grace and in favor and all of those, all of those human qualities because he was fully man, this king, fully man. Now look at the character of this king. First of all, Isaiah says, the government will rest on his shoulders. The government will rest on his shoulders. What does that mean? The government will rest upon his shoulders. Some have tried to allegorize that and make it sort of a mystical way of understanding government and a, and a sort of a symbolic or mysterious way of describing something other than government. Um, for instance, Justin Martyr in the second century and Ambrose in the fourth century suggested that the government will rest upon his shoulder was actually a, a, just a symbol for the cross. 
because the government is a sign of power or we associate power with government. And the cross, of course, is powerful to save and the cross is a, is a powerful thing. And so since the cross was on his shoulders and the government and the cross are both powerful things, that what Isaiah is describing here must be the cross resting upon his shoulders. Really? Do you get that? I don't get that. No Jew would have ever understood that. Isaiah would have never got that. No Jew to which Isaiah wrote would have ever understood it that way. What did the Jews expect of a Messiah? That the administration of a government would rest upon his shoulders. And what does Isaiah say? The administration of a government will rest upon his shoulders. He will have a government. He will have a government here on this earth. This is not a heavenly kingdom, not a heavenly rule that's being described. It is a literal, physical, earthly government. It will rest upon his shoulders. It was a a Hebrew way of describing the power or authority and the exercise of that power or authority that rested upon somebody who was in the position of a king. And it actually came from the notion that in Isaiah's day, if a king, the king wore a robe, and that robe was a symbol of his kingdom, his authority, and his power. And so if a king, for some reason, maybe he had to leave and go away for a period of time, he might take off his robe when serving as king or administrating the kingdom as king, and he might put that robe on somebody else and delegate to that person authority as king. In that case, it would be said that the government rested on his shoulders because the robe of the king was on the shoulders of this one designated. So when the king wore his robe, you would say of him, the government rests upon his shoulders. The kingdom is his and he bears it. And the robe symbolized that. So what is Isaiah doing? He is using a figure of speech to describe something that was really literally going to happen. This king will have a government and it will rest upon his shoulders and he will rule and he will reign. Is this allegorical? Is it metaphorical? Is it mystical? Is it just symbolic? I don't think it is. Look at the look at how this kingdom is described and look at all the kingdom language in verse 6 and verse 7. The government will rest upon his shoulders. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. That all describes a kingdom. So not only do we have the nature and the character of this king described, we have actually the nature and the character of the kingdom described. And it is a literal kingdom, a literal government that he will administer and rule and reign over. That is his character. Look at how Isaiah describes him now, four ways. He is a wonderful counselor. Now you can take wonderful and counselor, you can divide it up, or you can put them together however you want to. Some people divide them up as two separate names. Some people put them together as a descriptive name in itself. He is wonderful, and that is that his character, his nature, his being is wonderful. He is full of wonders. He does wonder. He is wonderful and awe-inspiring. He is also a counselor. He is a wonderful and he is counselor. Uh, kings in those days always had counselors and cabinets and advisors and people who sort of uh, hung around them and gave them input. This king will need no counselors. This king will need no advisors, no cabinet, nobody to give him counsel. Why? Because this king is himself the counselor. Who can be his instructor or give him knowledge? Who can teach him in the way of righteousness? Who can stand around the Lord Jesus Christ and say, you know what, this is how this ought to be done. We have a situation here. Here is how you ought to deal with this situation. Who can do that? He doesn't need that. He's God. And he doesn't need anybody who is man to stand there and say, look, your subjects want this, and to represent the subjects to the king, because this king is both God and men. So he is God. He needs no wisdom. He needs no counsel from anybody. He knows perfectly what to do in every situation all of the time without fail. And he knows exactly how to handle his subjects because he is also man. So he needs nobody to intercede for him to explain to him how his subjects might feel. Because he is fully God and he is fully man, he's a perfect king. Perfect king. He is wonderful, counselor. And then look what Isaiah says. 
He will be called also Mighty God. El Gibor is the name, Almighty or the Mighty God. He is not only one born to us, but He is God with us, right? Emmanuel. That's what Isaiah 7.14 said. He will be called Emmanuel. He will be called God with us because He is going to be this one born, this child given to us, will Himself be called Mighty God. And that's exactly what we call Him. That's what He called Himself when He said, I am the I am. He said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He was calling Himself the Mighty God and claiming to be the Mighty God because He is. He will also not only be the Mighty God, but the Father or Eternal, the Eternal Father, or better translation, Father of Eternity. Some people kind of stumble a bit with the title, the Eternal Father. Because we understand that the Son is not the same as the Father, right? So do we have Isaiah here saying that this one who is going to be born King is the Father? Why is the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, called here the Eternal Father? That causes some people a bit of consternation. It shouldn't cause you any consternation at all. What Isaiah is describing is not Jesus' relationship to the other members of the Trinity. He is describing this king's relationship to time. He is the father of eternity. That would be a better translation of eternal father. He is the one who is before time. He is the one who is himself eternal. His relationship to time is this. He, as God, is the father of time. He created it. Right? Jesus created all things, all things in heaven, all things on earth. Nothing was made that was made without him. He created all things, and time is one of his creations. So as the creator of time, he is the father of time. He is over time. He rules before time. He existed before time. So he's not the eternal father as in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is the father of eternity. As Micah says in chapter 5, verse 2 of his prophecy, his goings forth have been from everlasting to everlasting. He has no beginning, and he will have no end. That is this father of eternity. And he is also the prince of peace, and that describes his kingdom. He is the prince of peace. He's the king of kings, the lord of lords, and the prince of peace. What will his kingdom be like? Peace. Peace. Has this world since the fall ever known peace? On a global scale. Not even on a, not even on a regional scale has this world ever known peace. Well, I guess that's not true. There was one moment when Noah stepped off the ark and everything was gone, right? And that would have been peaceful. Finally off the boat and my three sons can go their separate ways and I have peace. That would have been a time of international peace. But as long as there have been nations and peoples and groups and tribes and tongues, there's been warfare and bloodshed. But this king, when he rules, it will be a time of peace. That's what Psalm 2 is describing when he says that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will crush the nations like an earthenware vessel. And he will destroy them so that they are no more. In that, in that context, I can say to you, I look forward to the day when this nation is no more. Because when he sets up his kingdom, I am happy to be done with every other kingdom on the face of the earth forever. And it will be a time of international and global peace. Because he will be God ruling from the nation of Jerusalem over the throne of David and it will be a time of perfect peace. You and I can't bring that to pass, as we're going to see in a second. We can't make that happen. But God will make that happen. It will be a time of perfect peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Now look at the nature of his kingdom. This is verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his kingdom or of peace. So we've looked at the king, his coming, and his character. Now we're going to look at the kingdom. And I want you to notice, first of all, the scope of this kingdom. The scope of it. To his kingdom, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And that literally means... His government or His rule will continue to increase for all of eternity. This is kind of a mind-boggling concept, but this is what Scripture teaches. His rule and the administration of His rule, the expanse of His dominion and His sovereignty 
will increase, beginning from its inception, it will continue to grow and to increase and will do so for all of eternity. Now let me give you two seemingly contradictory but not contradictory thoughts. His rule as King of kings and Lord of lords will be absolute and infinite in every aspect. At the same time, it will increase for all of eternity. Now how can His rule be both infinite and continually increasing for all of eternity? I don't know how that's possible, but just because I don't know how it's possible doesn't mean that I'm going to doubt it for one moment. I don't know how it's possible that a man can be born both man and God. I don't know how it's possible for God to take upon Himself human flesh. But I don't doubt that for one minute. In the new heavens and the new earth, here is what I believe from Scripture we are going to see and experience. We are going to experience a new creation, physical creation. We will have glorified bodies. And Jesus Christ will rule and reign. And that new heavens and that new earth in some way His dominion, the expression of His dominion, though His reign is infinite, it is going to continue to increase more and more throughout all of eternity. And the expanse of His government and the the territory and the dominion over which He rules will never cease increasing. And it will be infinite and eternal. Isn't that a glorious thought? That's the scope of it. Where is that going to be located? Well, look at verse 7. It is on the throne of David and over His kingdom. So where is going to be, where is the center of this rule going to be fixated when he finally begins to rule? In the sense that Isaiah 9 and 6 is speaking. Where is that going to be at? It's going to be on the throne of David and over his kingdom. He is going to set up the kingdom of David and rule on the throne of David and he is going to do this forever and ever. It will begin here on earth and listen, eternity and eternal heaven will be spent in a kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ as he rules on David's throne forever in heaven, in a physical body. That will be the manifestation of this kingdom. He will set up the throne of David. He will reestablish the Davidic kingdom. He will reign and he will rule in Jerusalem. And that rule and that reign will go on everlastingly. And to his government and to his dominion, there will be no end. It will never end. It will continue on and on and on forever and forever and forever. And we will always worship Jesus Christ, Son of David, King of eternity and King over us. And we will bow the knee to a physical king who is both God and man who rules on David's throne. It's amazing stuff, isn't it? It's going to rule on the throne of David. Now, is this a description in verse 7 of heaven? Can we say that what Isaiah is describing in 9, 6, and 7 is just his spiritual rule now in heavenlies? That now he is ruling and reigning? And that that's really all that we should expect or see is that his rule and his reign now just kind of begins to work itself out as people get saved and as the gospel spreads and the kingdom of God advances, that that's all that we have to look forward to? Is this describing a heavenly rule? Was David's throne a heavenly throne? Was David's kingdom a heavenly kingdom? Did David rule from heaven or in Jerusalem? Was David's kingdom a heavenly kingdom or a kingdom situated in Jerusalem over the Jews? This is not a spiritual kingdom that Isaiah is describing. This is a physical kingdom. This is what every Jew expected, and this is what Isaiah is promising. When he comes back, it is going to be a physical kingdom. The throne of David is never called in Scripture God's throne, nor is God's throne ever likened in Scripture to the throne of David. They are two separate thrones. Right now, the Lord Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, at the right hand of the throne of God, and He rules and He reigns. But there is coming a time when He is going to sit on the throne of David, and that rule and that reign will be expressed right here on this earth for a thousand years of peace and prosperity and blessing like you and I cannot even possibly imagine. And then when the new heavens and the new earth come into being, that rule and that reign is going to continue on through all of eternity and it will have no end. 
It will change locations from this world to the next, but it will have no end. It will be over the throne of David and over his kingdom. And look at verse 7, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. That describes its security. The Jews expect, expected a throne of David to be established because that's what God promised David. You can go back and read 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can read Psalm 89, and I would recommend this to you. It's a 52-verse commentary on Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And not that Psalm 89 was written as a commentary, but it's a 52-verse explanation of the same thing that Isaiah is describing. And in Psalm 89, the psalmist says, the throne of David is broken down. And what now are we to expect? Should we expect that the promises of God will fail because the, the Davidic kingdom is no more? And the promise of the psalm and the teaching of the psalm is no. God has sworn to His servant David and God will not turn His back on David. He said this to David and we believe that God will bring it to pass. So just as the kingdom is broken down and the nation now has come to an end, the psalmist says we expect God to reestablish it because this is what God promised to David. And Psalm 89 says that the, the kingdom shall endure... Sorry, Second Samuel 7 says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. The throne of the Lord Jesus Christ in the thousand-year reign, described in Revelation chapter 20, will be over the house of David, on the throne of David, and he will rule the nations as a Jewish king in Jerusalem on a real throne, in a real kingdom. Peace and prosperity forevermore. Notice its security. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. The, king of David, the, the kingdom of David had never known justice and righteousness. Was David a just and righteous man? No. He really wasn't just, was he? Was he righteous? Well, he was declared righteous by God based upon his faith. But was David really a righteous man in the same way that Jesus Christ is righteous? No, not at all, right? God even told him, look, David, you're not building me a house because the blood on your hands is, is immeasurable. I do not want your hands touching anything to do with my temple. I will give it to your son Solomon. Solomon will build it. David was not a just man in this way that Jesus is just. He was not completely righteous in the way that Jesus was righteous. And yet the promise is that this future king would be both just and he would be righteous. And he would establish this kingdom and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. That would be a secure kingdom. The kingdom of David had never known security. Even in the days of kingdom, sorry, even in the days of David, his kingdom began to wax and to wane, and you could see that it was getting weakened toward the end of David's reign. And then during the reign of Solomon, it continued to weaken. It was glorious, it was wealthy, and there was a time of peace, but you could tell that the seeds of its own destruction were being sown even in the time of Solomon. And when Solomon died, what happened? The whole thing came undone. And the northern kingdom broke away, and you had an unrighteous king take over ten tribes, and you had a, a righteous king take over, uh, take over two tribes in the south, and then there was conflict between them and civil war, and they were constantly going against each other and had alliances that were short-lived, and there were powers outside of that kingdom that constantly threatened their well-being and their safety and their security, and constantly sought to overthrow them and destroy them. There was no such thing as security, not from the time of David onward. There was at no point where you can say that the people of God were ever secure in that land. There was constantly the threat that they would be taken over and destroyed. And yet here's the promise through Isaiah. This king will establish it and it will be forever. And it will be secure. And there will be no uprisings. There will be no threats from the outside. Nobody will make war against it. Nobody will threaten its security. Nobody will seek your destruction. You will be at peace because he is the prince of peace. So he can establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. And that would happen from then on and forevermore. So what is the kingdom like? Its scope, it is eternal, always increasing in an infinite reign. 
It is secure. It is established by this King of Kings and it will never come to an end. And nobody will ever threaten it to overthrow it or to destroy it. And it will never wax. It will never wane. It will never be, it will never diminish. It will continue to increase, not get lesser. And listen, in the days of Isaiah, you know what Isaiah was watching? Isaiah was watching the, basically the dissolution of the line of David. Isaiah was seeing that. Remember the wicked king that we talked about last week back in chapter 7? Burning his children and offering them to the God of Moloch. Burning them alive in the fires of the molten God of Moloch. And all the idolatry that he did and the wickedness. And he did not do right in the eyes of the Lord. And Isaiah was watching his whole nation basically come undone through immorality and wickedness and idolatry and national apostasy. And the nation was getting weaker and weaker and the threats outside were getting greater and greater. And any Jew standing in Isaiah's day would have said this. How is it possible that this kingdom could go on forever and ever? Not under these conditions. He lived in a time of national uncertainty when every Jew would have been thinking to himself, this is the end of our kingdom. This is the end of our land and of our nation. And we need God to step in and to do something. And that is exactly what Isaiah promised that God would do. The end of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That is its surety. This kingdom is sure. It will not come to an end, and God is going to be the one who will accomplish this. This kingdom will not come about because of any human endeavor. It's not going to be implemented because you and I preach the gospel and spread the gospel and Christianize the nations. That's not how it's going to happen. It's not going to happen through our effort. It's not going to happen through the UN. It's not going to happen through the Council of Nations or the League of Nations or any other man-made, man-organized group. It is not going to happen because our president is able to broker peace in the Middle East and finally make this happen. No, no, if Scripture is true, then what is going to happen is this world is going to come undone. Undone. But there is going to come a time when God says, that's enough. I'm setting my king on Mount Zion. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. And this will not happen through our effort or through human ingenuity or through peace treaties. It's not going to happen that way. It's also not going to fail to happen because of disobedience. Listen, if there was a time when God should have said, okay, as a nation, you have been disobedient. I'm changing my plan. This promise is no longer for you. It's no longer going to happen that way. If that was going to happen, this is where you would read of it. A nation completely given over to idolatry, wickedness, immorality, and apostasy. Read the first eight chapters of the book of Isaiah. It makes it makes our nation look like a Christian nation, what was going on back then. It was horrible. The wickedness and the immorality of the entire nation was unimaginable. And yet God says, this is my promise. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Is this going to be undone because of man's disobedience? No. Is it going to be accomplished through man's obedience? No. It is God who is going to do this. He is going to establish His King and He will see to it that it is done. Not by our effort. By His doing. Does David's throne exist today? Does David's kingdom exist today? The Jews do. The Jewish nation does, right? They have a land. They have a government. Well, listen, the, the government of the Jews today is not, going to, is not going to morph and become Christianized and become messianic and then eventually sort of morph into the kingdom of the Messiah. The government of Israel today is going to be crushed, just like the government of the United States or whatever exists here at the time that Christ comes back. It is going to be crushed just like the government of China and Russia and the governments of South America and Africa and Central America, every government on the face of the planet will be dissolved and destroyed by the coming of this king. David's throne does not exist today. 
David's kingdom does not exist today. David's line does not exist today. You can't even trace back a Jew today to make sure that he goes back to the line of David. But do we need to be able to do that? We don't, because David's son is coming back to rule and to reign. That is our hope. This one who was born, God, in human flesh, was born unto us a son, and he was born unto us a sovereign. And what is the hope of every true believer? We look forward to the day when he appears and he fulfills all that is written to the Jews and to us in Scripture. And he will rule and he will reign forever and ever, King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of peace, the mighty God, the Father of eternity, and to his kingdom and to his throne, there will never be an end. It is the right response of every redeemed heart to be willing and ready to bow the knee in humble obedience to such a gracious and sovereign king. Right? We talk about the kingdom coming. It's going to be violent when he comes. He is, he's not going to come and broker a peace agreement. He's not going to come and, and begin negotiating with kings. He's going to come and depose kings. It's going to be over. And when he rules, it is going to be a benevolent dictatorship. It is going to be a time of blessing and prosperity and grace and compassion. Can you imagine a kingdom that is completely righteous? Can you imagine a government that's completely righteous? Can you, can you, yeah, it makes you laugh to even ask the question, doesn't it? Can you imagine a, a government where justice is done instantly and fully and forever? Can you imagine a government that is the perfect expression of the compassion and the love and the grace and the benevolence and the kindness of the eternal and infinite God? Can you imagine such a government? You can't imagine it. But the Old Testament describes it going to be a kingdom and it's going to be peaceful and prosperous and nation will not lift up sword against nation it is going to be a time of immense blessing that you and i get to look forward to because unto us is born a son unto us a child is given he's the father of eternity he is the mighty god in human flesh and he will rule and rule and reign over the house of david and on his throne forever and forever and forever let's bow our heads our Father, it is our joy to be able to bow our knees and our hearts before such a, an awesome and benevolent God as You, to own You as our own, to call You our own, to have the joy of being called by Your name that You have saved us. We thank You that all of this that has been described here this morning and our salvation is completely Your doing. You are the one who has chosen us, who has called us, who has loved us, who has atoned for our sin, drawn us to Yourself, given us faith, granted us repentance, secured us and sanctified us for all of eternity, and you are the one also who will establish this kingdom and rule and reign over us. We thank you that as your people we have the joy and the expectation of being able to look forward to a time when we will enjoy the blessings of this kingdom on this earth. And our hearts can only say we pray that you would hasten that day and even so come Lord Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.